following audio is from a sermon series entitled, A Church for the City. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from James 2, 1 through 18. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one has, who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is the word of the Lord. At Sacred City Church, our mission extends far beyond just building a great church. Yeah, we, we want to have great worship. We want uh, to have people living life in community on mission together. We want this good thing of building a great church. And we are here to make disciples, plant churches, and renew our city. And, and what we're doing is showing that, that that last part of our mission, to renew our city, showing us that it, it goes beyond just what happens here within these walls. And we've been putting flesh on this mission that we have of making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the city through this sermon series called The Church for the City. And, and what we've really been doing is focusing in on that last part of renewing the city. What does it look like for us at Sacred City Church to be working for the renewal of our city? Um, 
we do have a heart for our city. Um, we, we, we have a desire to build great churches that are full of gospel-believing people that would enter into the city with a heart for the city to work toward its flourishing and work toward its maximum potential. And we believe that the way that this happens, the way that our city is transformed is when there's a gospel movement where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and people respond to the gospel in faith in a way that stirs up personal transformation, creates meaning community, a community that is aimed at social justice and cultural renewal. And at this point, I'm realizing my three or four cups of coffee are kicking in, so I hope you can keep up with me today, because it's going to be fast, I'm telling you. Um, And that's what we're doing. And so each week, we've been unpacking a little piece of that statement of of how we're here to to see the gospel work for transformation, create meaningful community, and social justice and cultural renewal. And today, we're talking about how a church for the city is working for for social justice. We're specifically focusing on justice and mercy and how a church for the city is a church that steps into that. Um, uh, uh, What you don't realize, though, is, is how controversial this topic is. Right. Anytime you start talking about social justice, you got all kinds of ideas that are flying around. It's not just out in the culture, not just politically, but also here inside of the church. Um, and, and I think this is a shame. I think it's a shame because it's so controversial, especially here in the church, because many Christians have opinions on social justice that are more informed politically in a political worldview than a Christian or biblical worldview. And so here, here's the deal, church. God has a lot to say on this subject matter. God has a lot. It was so difficult for me to, this week to find a passage that would really communicate, not because there was a lack of there, but, but there was so much to choose from. And, and so we are going to wade through this from a biblical worldview. And in fact, one thing that I just want to point out here as we talk about social justice and this, this idea of social justice is that many historians and, and scholars will actually trace the origin of this idea of social justice, of, of justice and mercy back to the Christian faith. Uh, And so we want to be people who understand justice, mercy, social justice. And so we're going to go to the word of God and and see see what it has to say to us. Because if our idea of social justice is shaped by politics, what we're going to have here is a dichotomy, a false dichotomy between justice and mercy. Political parties will inevitably make you choose between one or the other, put an emphasis on justice or an emphasis on mercy. We think of justice as getting what you deserve. You do the crime, you do the time, right? That's justice. And mercy is getting what you don't deserve. It's the get out of jail free card. And what you see here, it seems like there's a paradox between justice and mercy. And how, how do you hold these two things in tension? And politically, we have not done that well. And I want to show you how this plays out real quick, if you'd let me. And, and to do this, i got to speak generally. I hope I don't step on, well, I hope I do step on some toes. But, but I'm, we're going to do it with uh, grace and truth here. Can we agree that conservatives and liberals have different ideas, different perspectives, different thoughts, specifically when it comes to the idea of poverty, right? Uh, The right side of the spectrum typically sees poverty as a matter of individual responsibility. 
The people who are poor are poor because they have made bad decisions. It's, it's sort of, if you want to point the finger at somebody's fault, that they would say, well, they, they've just not made great life decisions and they're here because they've got themselves here. And, and there is some truth to that. There is some truth to responsibility, personal responsibility. But because the right typically looks at that as the main thing, they overlook the systemic and cultural injustices that are legitimate and, and playing out in real time. Their solutions for remedying poverty tend to lean more towards the individual responsibility, advocating for compassionate and responsible solutions, putting the responsibility back in the hands of the poor people. To them, they see this as mercy, right? The poor getting what they don't deserve. Now, with this approach... What can happen is this becomes paternalistic, where this sense of, uh, of dependence happens between the rich and the poor, and eventually it'll lead toward being patronizing. Now, the left has a different view of poverty. They view poverty mostly as a form of systemic injustice. The system is set up in a way that the rich, the affluent, prosper in a way that disadvantages the poor. They look at the, the system. The problem is the system, the cultural issues. And what happens then is they downplay the personal responsibility. Their motivation is to help meet those needs, to step into the world of the needy and, and, and bring them along. But a lot of times their motivation for finding a solution is mixed with indignation. And a downfall of this mentality will typically lead toward anger, bitterness, and division. See, there, there's a lot of finger pointing. The problem is them. The problem is them. Now, these ideologies, although we don't want this to happen, they, they make their way into the church. And we see this tension even between Christians of the liberal and conservative persuasion. Conservative churches tend to place an emphasis on personal responsibility and saying, well, we need to preach the gospel Right? And the focus of the church is to preach and proclaim the gospel, but in a way that they aim spe specifically at morality and conversion in a personal sense and downplay the action that God has called us into, where liberal churches tend to downplay the proclamation of the church and do a really good job of stepping into doing good in the city, pursuing social justice. The conservatives emphasize proclamation, the liberals emphasize Action And there, again, we see a dichotomy. But this is a false dichotomy. Jesus has called his church to do both, to proclaim and to show in action, in word and deed. Now, when we live this out as Christians, what, what we'll find is that we live in a middle ground here. That we're too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. This is the space that Jesus occupies but with this, in occupying this unique space, we have the unique ability to hold justice and mercy in, ten, in tension without contradiction. And so what I want to show you here this morning as we work through this subject, I want to show you what a community of justice and mercy looks like. I want to tell you why it's hard. You already know it's hard, but I'm going to tell you why it's hard. And then I'm going to tell you the reason why we can overcome this and why we can actually become this kind of community. So here we go. Last week... Uh, in this series, we talked about what Christian community is known for from an internal perspective, right? We're, we're people who are connected to one another because of the gospel. We share our lives, we share our things, we share our faith, and we share our mission. 
Um, this week, we're going to talk about what a Christian community is known for from an external perspective. So people who, in our city who are outside looking in, when they look at Christians, how should they see us? And I think the answer here is for justice and mercy. And this is not new to the New Testament. This is not a new thing for Christians. This has been a thing that God has always been concerned about from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God has called his people to be a community of justice and mercy because God is a just and merciful God. It's rooted in his character. In fact, if you go through, if we just do a quick survey, I've got a couple of of verses here. Dang it, and I don't have it. I had it printed out. I'll read it up on the screen. We've got Leviticus 19, 15, right in the middle of the Torah here. We got it. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And then it goes on to Isaiah from the major prophet. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case, cause, excuse me. And then we go to Micah, which is a great passage. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? Or the the NIV translation is to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, all throughout the Old Testament, God has had this this agenda for his church to embody justice and mercy. And, And when we come to the New Testament, James, the apostle, is emphasizing the same thing, that Christians ought to be known for justice and mercy. And we see this here in Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, what he's doing here, and this is sort of a, we've got to kind of do some work here to really get to this conclusion of justice and mercy in this passage. But what he's doing here is forbidding preferential treatment or discrimination. And this is typically based on class. How this plays out is based on class or race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, worldview. And you can go on down the line. Any, any sort of external way that you can make a distinction between people. James is saying that, that when you see somebody, you need to see beyond the externals and see them at the heart. In fact, as he goes in in verse 2 through 3, he gives an example of how this plays out. He says, two guys walk into the church. Sounds like a bar joke, right? Two guys walk into the church or your missional community. And, and, and so he says, here's this rich guy. He pulls up in a Maserati. He walks in drip, and he's got the Versace suit on. He's got the, the, his watch is on fleek. He's, got, he's all blinged out, right? He's got the external appearance. He's clearly wealthy. And then here the other guy gets off the bus. He's got these raggedy clothes on. He's probably come from a third shift. He's got messy hair covered in stains. Shoes are worn out. Now, James is acknowledging our, 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 I would say it's our fallen disposition toward elevating or honoring the rich person to the exclusion of the poor person. He says, we, we see this rich person, we gravitate toward him, he looks like he's got his life put together, and so what do we do? We make him a distinguished guest. We say, Here, here's the seat of honor, here's, here's the place where we want you to sit down, enjoy it, we'll fix you a plate, we'll, we'll make you comfortable. We want you to make sure that you know that, that we like you, that you belong here. Now you compare that to how the, the poor guy is treated here, where he's ignored. He walks through the door, well, it's like, well... We're glad you're here, but why don't you just go ahead and stand in the corner? Make sure you stay out of the way. 
Maybe there's a, a space down here uh, for you to sit at our feet. Now, the problem in this scenario is not how the rich guy was treated. In fact, you look through scripture, there's always this command to, to well, even to outdo one another in showing honor. See, the problem isn't how the rich guy was treated. The problem is in how the poor man was treated inconsistently with this rich guy. And this isn't just bad hospitality, right? James isn't saying, hey, you just need to work a little bit harder to get your hospitality game on point. No, no, no. He says that this is what's going on is evil. This, this preferential treatment is an evil thing. Verse 4 says, you have become judges with evil thoughts. Now, to frame this up a little bit differently to help you understand, he's, what he's saying here is you have become judges who take bribes. You know what that's called? That's called perverting justice. That's, that's an unjust way of operating. Now, James is not saying that Christians are doing illegal activity or doing any egregious sins. That's, that's not what he's identifying here when he says this is an evil thought. But what he's showing here in showing partiality and elevating the rich man in a way that diminishes the poor man, we are dishonoring the poor man. And he says, thus you've broken the royal law. That, that, that's what he's talking about in verse 8. The royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we think about loving our neighbor as ourself, I think we, we tend to think of this as a matter of just being courteous. Being nice people. But, but really what James is getting to here, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, it's a matter of justice. Because loving your neighbor, looking at them beyond the external appearances is the foundation of living justly. See, all forms of justice stem from this. Now, this is what I mean. To love our neighbor, we must look beyond the external and to the internal. Here's what I mean. That every person that you will ever encounter is made in the image of God. Every person you meet, whether wealthy or poor, white or black or Indian, whatever divisions you want to make culturally, socially, every person is made in the image of God. They are deserving of love, of respect, and of honor. They've been created to reflect God in a way that shows his value, his dignity, and his worth. And when we dishonor someone, when we show partiality, we are forgetting that truth. The story of the Good Samaritan is a perfect example of how this plays out in a positive way. You, you probably know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? It's sort of like a you speak of it culturally. We know this idea of somebody. Here's the story. I'll unpack it if you're not with me. Story of a good Samaritan. Jesus is asked this question. This whole parable that Jesus tells is birthed out of the question, who is my neighbor? Right? And the question, how do I love my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story about a man who was traveling, a Jewish man who gets beat up along the way. Robbers take his stuff. They leave him for dead. And while he's there laying, like, gasping for air, we see Jewish leaders, one after another, there's two guys that walk by and they see him and, and 
with the intentions of keeping the law, keep, keeping the, 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 the law of worship, they walk by him and just sort of leave him for dead. And then along comes this Samaritan man who has a very different approach to the scenario. And, and, and what's significant about this is that there has always been a cultural tension between Jewish people and Samaritan people. If you're a Harry Potter fan, it's like the half-bloods, the muggles, and the full-blood people, right? There's this tension that's going on. And so, the, you know, at face value, the Jewish people, the Samaritan people, they're always looking down at each other. They're bickering. They're quarreling. They don't see eye to eye. There's this cultural divide that just seems like there's a huge chasm that's sort of unbridgeable. But this Samaritan man has a different approach. See, to follow suit, to follow the culture would be to ignore this man, leave him for dead. But he has a different approach. He sees him and he has compassion for this man. He takes it upon himself to, to gather him up, throw him on his donkey, to walk him to an inn, to, to pay the, the, the innkeeper to take care of, to help this guy get back to health. And so Jesus tells this story. Now, when we see the Good Samaritan being compassionate and caring for this undeserving stranger, somebody who's, there's clearly a dividing line between the Samaritan and the Jewish man. We go, oh, wow, that's, that's a compassionate. And actually, we would, we would rightly say that that's a merciful act, right? That, that, that's what scripture, that passage says, that that's a merciful thing to do. But when we understand the Imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God, this idea of meeting basic human needs is also a matter of justice, of, of giving people their inherent due that they've been made in the image of God. And so this is part of the story of the Good Samaritan. Yes, there's mercy, but, but there's also justice in this. He, he looked at this man, saw he was made in the image of God, and he shows him love and honor and cares for him as if he were his own. And so here we get this picture of justice, giving what people are due based on the Imago Dei. But there's also this calling for Christians to live mercifully. In verse 13, this is a really hard saying. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now in a very abrupt way. James is saying, listen, church, if you want to talk about the mercy of God, you need to practice mercy yourself. And he's saying here that, that, that if you are stingy with mercy toward others, you yourselves will find mercy in short supply. Now, when we think of mercy, most of us have some general working, some general definition of the word mercy. And it's not a bad thing, right? To, to show mercy is to be kind, to be compassionate, to be forgiving. And that, I think, is true, definitely, mercy in this general sense. But if you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus interacting with the people that he crossed paths with, you'll see people crying out to, to Jesus, have mercy on us. Now, when they're asking Jesus, have mercy on us, surely they're asking for more than just kindness and forgiveness, are they not? Right? What's happening? These people are calling out to Jesus saying, we have physical and material needs that we would like for you to address. Some of people are sick. Some people are, are poor. Some people are blind. 
And so in this interaction people have with Jesus, we see that not only does mercy have this general sense of kindness and forgiveness, but mercy also has a a specific uh, definition as well, a specific act of taking care of physical and material needs. In fact, that's what James is getting after here in verse 15 when he goes down. He says it's, it's useless if someone says, someone who needs clothes or food for survival and the, and the church says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and you don't give them anything. See, that, that's a lack of mercy. what James is saying here to Sacred City Church and to, to all the churches, but listen, church, to us, that we will be judged if we just talk about love, if we just talk about justice, if we just talk about mercy and don't put our money, our time, our efforts where our mouth is to help people in our city. See, being a church for the city means that we will be willing to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage other people. That's what it looks like to be a church that pursues justice and mercy, a willingness to disadvantage ourselves to advantage other people. Now, processing this this week, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm just like, oh, gosh, those are some Strong words, Lord, tell us, tell me that we're doing this. Because right, you, you look at Sacred City Church, we don't have a benevolence ministry, we don't have a food pantry, we don't have anything specifically in place that would be like, we'd point to and say, this is where we're practicing justice. This is where we're meeting tangible needs. So I'm asking, are we, are we doing this? Now listen, there's always room for growth in this area. I think as God continues to grow this church, our responsibility for this expands and grows. But yes, we are doing this. And we're doing it in sort of organic and natural ways. Ways that we don't need a program or a ministry to specifically, you know, go and volunteer. Though though there are a lot of places where we can go and volunteer. We, We are doing this through our everyday lives lived with gospel intentionality, specifically in our missional communities. Now, Trent talked about missional communities uh, as he was doing his introduction here in the announcements. Missional communities are groups of people uh, who gather together on a weekly basis to pray, to eat, to grow in God's word, to share life together, not just just at one one event, but throughout all of the ordinary rhythms of life. And each missional community gathers with this mindset that we exist not just for ourselves, not just for the sake of community, but for the sake of our city. And so each missional community chooses a people and a place, a specific people and a place to be on mission to. A a people and a place, whether it's an organization, a school, a a neighborhood, to say this is the people that we believe God has called us to, to intentionally bless and to serve in meaningful ways. And so just thinking over the last year, of how our missional communities have been living, uh, living and leaning into this and doing this. We, we saw the Forest Hill back in January. There's a family who lost their home in a fire. Forest Hill Missional Community got a, a phone call from Principal Vicki, and she said, hey, we got this situation. Is there anything that your people can do? We gathered clothes, furniture, meals, help these people get on their way. And listen, there, there's a lot of other organizations that help do that, but, but as a church, we stepped into that. 
Park Hill Missional Community is on mission to the Logan Elementary School. What, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're uh, helping out with this nutrition club. Kid, kids who may go home over the weekend and not have food to eat until they come back to school on Monday. And so they're trying to supply meals and food for them. They're offering these outreach events. And, and so they're partnering to meet these specific needs. And, and then it's not just that, beyond that. Sacred City Church, we... we there are several families between our two churches that are partnered with Safe Families. I don't know if you know about Safe Families. In fact, Safe Families has moved into our building this week. They're going to start officing out of some of the extra space that we have here. Um, Safe Families is an organization that's like a backstop uh, before kids have to go into the foster care system. So they provide short-term relief. Sometimes it's short-term. Sometimes it, it st- extends longer to, to help moms. It's usually single moms or single parents who are going through some sort of crisis to help them care for their kids and, and come alongside of them and, and love them. We've got people who are helping with 180, another ministry that's, that's down in um, West Davenport, downtown West Davenport, helping people who have been marginalized, usually people who have a criminal background or have some sort of experience with drugs that, that has created a conflict in their life. 180 partners with them. A lot of our people help and, and give resources toward 180. There are ways, and, and there are a lot of other organizations here in our city that we're engaged with. And so there are places where this is happening. So I'm not coming up here and giving us a slap on the hand saying, try better, do harder. We, we are doing it. I want to highlight the places where God is already using us, where he's already at work in these places. But I think there's a danger here. I think there's a danger when we look at these organizational things that we might jump into for one, one night a month, you know, and saying, well, here's where we do that, and it's sort of become a compartmentalized part of our life. Or, or we might have this tendency to look and say, well, you know, well, Pastor Sam, you just listed off all these things. We're doing it as a church. and say, So we look and say, well, somebody's doing it, and not have this individual responsibility to step into social justice ourselves. But here's the reality. Every single Christian, everybody who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has a personal responsibility to pursue justice and mercy. And this is not an optional thing. This is not an extracurricular Christian mentality. This is at the heart of it because it's the heart of God's character. Living a just and merciful life is not a one-time-a-month event. It is something that is integrated into everyday life. And this means that we must develop eyes to see this. The reality is, it is so easy for us to turn a blind eye. It's so easy for us to hear a need in one ear and it go right out the other. And so it's not enough for us to just agree with justice and mercy in theory. That, that Christians must live and embody justice and mercy, and it goes with them wherever they go. In fact, 1 John chapter 3.18 says, Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now, he's not saying let's not use loving words. Let's not tell people about Jesus He's saying we have to do both. And so what this means for you, think just for a moment. I don't like to think individually. I like for us to think collectively as a church a lot of the times, right? We're the body of Christ, not individual members scattered throughout this. We're the body of Christ. But for this one moment, think individually. What does it look like for you to live with a mindfulness of justice and mercy? 
maybe it looks like getting involved with safe families. Maybe it means opening up your home for the people who are in crisis. Maybe it means getting more involved with King's Harvest or some of the local food pantries or 180 or, or pregnancy resources. Or you can go down the list of all of these nonprofits that are in our city that are doing good under the name of Jesus. And we can link arms with them and do that in, in meaningful ways. But I think also, how do we live out justice and mercy in our neighborhoods? I had this really unique interaction. I've lived in my house for the last three years almost, so a little over three years. Um, and we've been doing a pretty good job of knowing our neighbors and get to know their stories and sharing life with them. There's this one lady that lives um, four houses down from us that, you know, I'm out, out on a walk with my kids. How much time do I have? I don't know where I'm at. Do I have time for this? I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, I walk past her with my kids, and we always say hi, very friendly. The, the house next door to her has been run down. It's, it's, uh, it's not fit for human uh, occupancy. And the, the yard has just been overgrown for quite some time. I went over there with my weed eater and just started knocking down the weeds. And it was really fun. I got a new weeder, so it's like, it's kind of like a, it's like, it was super fun. So I can't like take credit for that. Um, but I'm doing this and, and I'm, I'm weeding and she, she stops me and starts talking and we start, get to talking about our neighborhood. She's been in my neighborhood for 31 years. And she starts giving me the run of this neighborhood and, and the, the ups and the downs it had. And I live in the Broadway district down in Rock, Rock Island where there's a lot of really beautiful homes and there's a lot of really awful homes. There's a lot of really good people who, who love the Lord and are pursuing goodness and keeping their homes nice. And there's a lot of, lot of brokenness, a lot of gang activity, drugs, prostitution going on in my own neighborhood. And she's sitting there, she's talking about it and what she's been doing and how specifically as a white 30-something-year-old guy, and she's here, she, I don't know, I don't want to, she's got to be like 60s, 70s, African-American lady. She, she's a doctor. She's been a pastor. She's a veteran. She's talking about just overall the tension of crossing racial lines that's happened within my neighborhood. Right? And just talking about, like, it's so bizarre that, a white boy would sit up on a front porch with her, right? And you wouldn't think that we, where we're at in this, where we are in the country, we don't have hundreds and hundreds of years of, of racial tension like some parts down in the South, but, but there are still very much racial tensions that are existing in our city, right? And, and the unique opportunity we have just in sharing life and sharing porch conversations with people who aren't like us is a step toward justice and mercy to hearing those people. So what does that look like for you to live out justice and mercy? Now, whenever there's a call to action like this, grumbling is usually close behind. Right? We've got all kinds of excuses why we can't do this. It's too hard. I'm too busy. I don't have the time. don't have the money. Right? When I was in a position like that, nobody helped me. But, but really when you get to the root of what stands in the way of living of this out, of being a, a community of justice and of mercy, what's at the heart of it? Why is this so hard? Pride. Now, it's interesting to see. I, I pulled up that Micah 6.8 passage. It says to do justice, love mercy. And it's so interesting to me, the third piece of that verse, to walk humbly. I don't think Micah's just throwing random words in there. 
I think there's a lot of intentionality when he calls us to, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly because humility is the key that opens up this life of justice and mercy. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. You don't have to be self-deprecating to be humble. But he does say, humility is thinking of yourselves less. Humility is the, the way that we are aware of the people around us. We don't just live with these blinders on that only make us look internally to ourselves, but we have this external vision that allows us to observe what's going on with the people around us. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the vision the Spirit of God gives us to see how we can step into those things to bless and to serve them. There's, uh, I don't, I forgot the guy's name, but there's a song. Uh, this isn't even worth saying if I can't think of it. Give, give us, give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see. Give me your eyes because I've been missing everything. I, I botched the words. You can Google it. <laughs> the idea is we need the eyes of God to see people like this. We have to have eyes. We have to see beyond ourselves, but we also, we also must have an accurate perception of ourselves, an understanding of our own condition. You see, pride works in a way that, that keeps us isolated, keeps us focused, self-focused, but it also works in a way that distorts our perception of ourselves and of other people. It, it puffs me up or it makes me put them down. We say things like, well, it's, it's beneath me to do this. I, I, I'm too busy. I've got, I'm too important to give myself to this cause. Or we are puffed up in a way that says, well, these people don't deserve this. What have they done? See, our pride gets in the way of, of, of justice and of mercy. But verse 5 is an ego check. If you're a Christian, this is a kick in the teeth. He says, God chose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. What he's saying here, church, is you were poor. Now, he might be speaking materially here. Like you may have, there been, may have been a point in your life where you had a limited amount of resources at your disposal. But this even more so means that you were spiritually poor. You were spiritually needy. Here's the reality, church. You cannot work or earn your way out of your neediness. You cannot just make better decisions to get out, to elevate yourself out of neediness. You can't use the self-help stuff that's going around. It doesn't work. You're always going to be in a place of spiritual need. What you need is to be lifted out of it. See, you can't lift yourself. You have to be lifted out. Somebody else has to intervene to use their resources on your behalf. Now, I'm just going to press into this here for a moment. Most of us in this room are middle-class people. And with the middle-class mindset, there comes this pride that we've made it. We've made a way for ourselves. We've earned it. We've got the jobs because we can work hard. We've got this blue-collar work ethic I talked about a few weeks ago. And so we've worked hard to get where we're at. And so we have this, the pride pushes back and says, well, I don't want a handout. I don't want a spiritual handout. I can handle this myself. And what happens is we never ask for grace, always on self-reliance. But scripture tells us that all of our attempts 
at being good enough. All of our attempts at elevating ourselves out of spiritual neediness are like filthy rags. See, it only proves your spiritual poverty. It only proves your neediness. And this this picture here, I hope you see it. You see yourself as the poor man who walks in in his shabby clothes. But the gospel says this, the only way that you'll ever be able to get yourself out of that place of spiritual poverty is to throw yourself on the charity of God. That's the only way, church. Look to Jesus where justice and mercy meet. Now, this is so interesting to me. When Jesus comes and brings justice and mercy, he doesn't just come and bring it in a spiritual sense. Jesus comes and he demonstrates the physical outworkings of the kingdom of God. It's both spiritual and physical. Look to the the king of glory. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Look at this glorious God-man who became materially poor for us on earth and took on our spiritual poverty at the cross so that we could be made rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. See, the cross shows us God's justice and mercy, right? It's where justice and mercy meet. The sins of the sinner are dealt with justly. They're punished. Jesus took the the whole cup of of wrath that our sins had accumulated and our sins of self-righteousness, our our sins of trying to be better, to, to remove ourselves from spiritual neediness. Jesus drank that cup down at the dregs. But here we see God's mercy in that sinners like you and me are spared. Now, if you remember this reality about yourself, if you you can recall this daily, moment by moment, you will simultaneously be humbled and exalted. Because you have this reality that I was the filthy poor man. And Jesus came and he elevated me to the seat of honor, that he gave me a noble name, that I'm no longer identified in myself, I'm identified in Christ. See, this is the glory of it all, that Jesus lost his glory. He set it aside so that we could have it. And believing the gospel is the only way that we can live out this calling for justice and mercy that is placed upon the Christian community. And it's this both and of love in action, of of proclamation, of of speaking of the truth, what what Christ has done for us, and living in a way that points to it. See, this is what James is saying here down in in verse 18 when he says, some will will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Right? There's that dichotomy there. Well, James is saying, show me your faith apart from works. I will show you my faith by my works. If you believe the gospel, action will follow. And that action is twofold in the proclamation of what God has done for us ultimately in Christ, but also in in moving toward people and meeting their needs and pursuing justice and mercy. 
And by living out just and merciful lives as a church, we are reflecting the glory of Christ through the city. And it's a means in which God can use us not, not only to meet physical needs, but to show how he has met our deepest spiritual need in Christ. As we come to the Lord's table today, we come remembering. We come remembering that at the cross, justice and mercy meet. That those who are broken, those who are needy, find their deepest needs met. And, and Christ's body being broken, his blood being shed. And this meal enables us, it fuels us. Because we see what Christ has done for us on the cross, it fuels us to live justly and mercifully in our city, to the glory of God and for the good of our city. Father, we thank you for Christ. Man, the center of it all. None of this, none of this is possible without him. And I pray, I pray Father, that, that we will leave here not just thinking of what do I need to do next, but just remembering what Christ has done for us. Would that truth sink deep into our hearts? Would it, would it be the motivation for all that we do? And God, would you help us to have the resources, to have the means to, to look and to see, to hear the needs in the city and to step into those to whatever ability you enable us to do. And would we do it with joy, knowing that wherever we go, wherever we're promoting justice and mercy, we are promoting the name of Christ, that the gospel goes with us. We ask for transformation, God, in our city, knowing that you're the only one who can bring it about. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.